0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the network, and this week I'm doing an interview for New Books in Buddhist Studies, as some of you know who probably listen to these interviews. I am, I don't know if I'm a practitioner of Buddhism, but I read a lot about it, and I listen to a lot of people talk about it, and I guess I'm kind of a would-be Buddhist. And when I saw Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is True, that's a hell of a title, definitely got my attention. Uh, The rest of the title is The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. I said to myself, I have to read this book. And in truth, I didn't read it. I got the Audible version. I'm a big fan of Audible. And let me tell Robert that the person that read it was very good. And I listened to it while building a house. It's an absolutely fascinating book. It has an insight in it, which I think is tremendous, and that is that there's something in our evolved psychology that makes Buddhism a valid antidote to many of our mental or sort of psychological problems. And I'd sort of dimly seen this, but what Robert has to say in this terrific book really brought it home to me. And he says it in a wonderful and very witty way. So I very much encourage you to go out and buy Bob's book, Why Buddhism is True. Welcome to the show, Bob.
1: Well, thank you, Marshall. It's great to be here.
0: So, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: (sighs) What part do you want to know about? Just who you are and what you do. That's it. Uh, I'm a white male. <laughs> I, I I write I run some websites uh, blogging heads TV meaning of life TV I've taught a little at the college level although I'm not really a credentialed academic but I've I've taught in fact I taught a seminar at Princeton on Buddhism and modern psychology and that was a a big part of developing this book but I started out as a journalist Kind of, and intermittently had brushes with academia. And I've written a few books: one on evolutionary psychology, uh, one on human history, um, one on God, <laughs> and, so I, and now on
0: Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, uh, and I'm not blowing smoke someplace. You've kind of had the career that I always wanted because i I, I was gonna say I made the mistake I became an academic, but I can see that your interests are extraordinarily broad and you're one of those people I envy because you write about what you want to write about or it seems that way so i
1: I feel I, I I have been lucky in that way i i have i mean there there are you know things about my life I'm not wildly enthusiastic about <laughs> but one thing in my career and and but but I think um I have been lucky. In that I have consistently been able to write about things I was interested in learning more about, and and you learn more about them in the process of writing them.
0: And that's fantastic. And they're you know the big questions the ones that were the ones that were supposed to at least when I became an academic were supposed to be addressing in an academia, and we don't really address. Them. Big questions are
1: not favored in academia these no. days. You know, we by and large, I mean it, there's an active bias against them.
0: Yes, there really is. Um, And I've been in and out of academia my whole life. I go in and I stay for a while and then I leave. and It's a very hard thing to do. But anyway, I I admire the breadth of your, I'll just call it scholarship and writing. And also you do another thing. And again, I'm not just flattering you. You actually translate really serious ideas into a language that I think people uh, appreciate and will actually listen to. So again, you're fulfilling one of the missions that academics are supposed to fulfill, that is public outreach for us. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. I mean, it's, 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 it's easier to do that when you... You are were not initially a specialist in the area. Mm -hmm. So when you you know, because if if I had spent, you know, thirty-five years in Buddhist studies, by now I would have totally lost track of what the lay person does and doesn't know about Buddhism. It's just hard to be an expert in anything and remember, keep in mind what people don't know who aren't experts. Um so one virtue of moving on to different things every time you, you you write a book uh is is that you can you can keep that in mind. The downside is it takes me a very long time to write a book because I do try to become reasonably conversant in the subject and, first. And,
0: and you absolutely have. And the, like I say, this book has a tremendous insight in it, and that is the relationship between evolutionary psychology and um, and Buddhism. But before we go there, let me ask you a standard question, and I
1: think a good question on the New Books Network, and that is, wh- <laughs> why the hell did you write this book? <laughs> well. Part of the answer does have to do with evolutionary psychology. I mean, I had written my book, The Moral Animal, about evolutionary psychology. That had highlighted for me uh, some of the more unfortunate aspects of human nature and made me more aware of the role they played in my life, you know, ranging from how ridiculous anxiety can be to how unjustified your unfair judgments of other people are and how ludicrous therefore is the the moralistic rage that you bring to bear on some of these people you judge uh, unfairly a lot of things like that were, were I was more aware of it but, but but evolutionary psychology doesn't give you anything to, to do about them it, it I think that the diagnosis of the problem is solid but there's no prescription for what you do about it Buddhism offers both a diagnosis that I I realized uh actually accords well with the diagnosis in evolutionary psychology that is to say the buddhist view of what the problem is with being a human is very much like the view i got from evolutionary psychology but then buddhism offers a prescription as well uh you know a a, a path you're supposed to follow in response to the truth about the human predicament the, the path involves uh meditation um and I mean, it's, that's particularly prominent in kind of the Western kind of secular Buddhism that my book is largely about. Although I I, I, I very much try to ground the book in traditional Buddhist philosophy and draw the connection between this uh, Western uh, meditative practice and, and Buddhist philosophy. Um, so I, I was, I guess, looking for... for an effective prescription. I was never what you would call a natural meditator uh I had tried meditating, but I have a short attention span. I'm not a picture of emotional equilibrium <laughs> um there was I had none of the ingredients of 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 you know becoming a great meditator. I finally went to a one week silent meditation retreat in two thousand three and had Amazing experiences there after a couple of days of intense frustration. Um, And by the end of it, my consciousness had just been kind of transformed. I was in a way better place than I had uh, started the weekend. And I don't want to act like it's trivially easy or even easy to sustain that state of mind. I mean, as people have gone to meditation retreats can attest, they can often dramatically affect you. But then, when the retreat's over, it's a challenge to sustain a daily practice that lets you hold on to at least a significant amount of what you got at the retreat. Um, but I did—I did find it. Uh, I did. I was sufficiently incentivized to try to develop a daily practice. Um, I lapsed for a few years between kind of 2003, somewhere between 2003 and 2009. But then I went on another retreat in two thousand nine that got me back on the path, and I've been since then. I've been to a number of retreats, and and that was the period when I was writing the book. Um, uh, Was after after resuming the practice uh, on a daily basis and nourishing that practice periodically with retreats. So, a lot of the answers to your question is why I wrote the book is I've found meditation to be useful. A very uh, I, I found Buddhism to have been very almost prescient in uh in coming up with a view of the human condition that turned out to accord well with a with a modern scientific view, not just from evolutionary psychology, but I think from modern experimental psychology more broadly. Um but the one other reason I thought it was important to write the book is I think uh meditation could really help the world. I'm I'm thinking in particular of mindfulness meditation, but I think doing mindfulness meditation, especially in the context of and with awareness of Buddhist philosophy, I just think is a constructive thing in the world. And the more people who do it, the better the world will be. And I think some specific problems we face right now, like, you know, ranging from political polarization to sectarian conflict and national conflict, I think a lot of these problems could be, uh, uh, might might be lessened if more people meditated.
0: I, I can tell you that my own brushes with Buddhism largely came out of the same impulses that uh, you discussed uh, because it has, and I don't know if this is the wrong word, but it has a kind of therapeutic aspect that I very much appreciated unlike some other religions that I had encountered. Uh, it, it actually has a, a solution to what I, you know, this problem of suffering and so on and so forth. Um, let, let's start with one preliminary. I just want to make sure that people understand the domain of the book, so to say. And the Buddhism that we're talking about here is not of the, um, I don't know what to say here, but the smells and bells variety. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. In other words, it is, I don't know, again, if if secular is the right uh, word for it or therapeutic is the right word for it, but it is a Western style. It is not the kind that you encounter in uh, Thailand and in China and in these other places.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it it is certainly not the type that you would encounter among lay Buddhists in Asia. I mean, there there are some real Western misconceptions about Buddhism in Asia. A lot of Westerners think of Buddhists as people who don't believe in God and do meditate. Well, that's (laughs) roughly backwards. I mean, the average lay Buddhist in, in Asia, the average lay Buddhist in Asia does not meditate and does believe not in a single omnipotent creator God, but does believe in deities does pray, does believe that ethical, that good conduct will 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 improve their afterlife, at least in the sense of making a favorable rebirth more likely. So the you know Buddhism in Asia is a lot more like Western religion than than Westerners realize. Um, yeah, and, I think that's right. Yeah. But but I would say that there is an authentic Asian grounding of what we think of as Western Buddhism, which which is to say that uh, you can go to Thailand or Burma, and I, I, and, and here I'm speaking of, the, of of mindfulness meditation in particular, and 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 that as as kind of joined with something called Vipassana meditation, which we can talk about later if you want the distinction between those, but they're kind of closely aligned. Anyway. Uh, that tradition, which is one of several traditions of Buddhist meditation that are big in America, and it's kind of the, the most recently big one, I would say. Lately, a lot of attention has been given to mindfulness meditation. That has authentic roots that can still be seen in uh, Southeast Asia. It's it's just that uh, it tends to be uh, practiced more among monks than lay people. Although even here, interestingly, one thing I discovered in reading the book, I had thought that that the idea of meditation as a, a thing for just kind of lay Buddhists to do as opposed to monks was a Western invention, but it really isn't. It, it actually um, got some momentum uh, starting, I don't know, a century or, a little, or, or more ago, kind of the late 19th century in Burma in reaction to British colonization Some monks—they were worried the Buddhist culture would not be preserved in the face of Western dominance, and among the things they did was start encouraging lay people to meditate, and 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 that is a country where uh, kind of mindfulness meditation um, has deep roots and, and and vipassana meditation so it, meditation as as kind of something that just regular buddhists do is not entirely a western invention but um it looms much larger in the west certainly than it does in asia broadly and similarly mindfulness meditation as it's taught and practice practiced here has acquired some distinctly Western features, but again, I would say that it, it is authentically rooted uh, in 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 the in the tradition in the Asian tradition, especially the Southeast Asian tradition, and indeed rooted in Buddhist philosophy as 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 it shows up a millennia a, a millennium ago or even a two millennia ago, closer to the very uh, birth of Buddhism. So, you know, I I I mean, let me give you an example, okay? So you may have heard that uh, mindfulness meditation is, or mindfulness is about living in the moment, being in the present, being in the now. Well, if you look at the original mindfulness meditation text called the Satipatthana Sutta, there's no phrase in there that can be translated as in the moment, now, or the present. It's not explicit. On the other hand, Uh, if you do what is prescribed in that text which is very much like what you're told to do by mindfulness meditation teachers which is start out by focusing on your breath and then as you kind of gain some equilibrium of mind start examining other things including things in your mind like feelings or thoughts or so on if you do all that as that text prescribes you will be living in the moment I mean that—that's you know you to do that successfully. You will have to stop your mind from want. Your mind will have to quit wandering the way it normally does. You'll have to let go of the your obsessions about what you did wrong yesterday or what you're planning to do today, and actually focus on stuff happening now. Uh, so you know it, it's a, there's a slightly new emphasis in this regard, but it's consistent with tradition. Uh, and there are other differences that you get from Western meditation. But, but one thing I try to emphasize in the book, I, I try to provide uh, in accessible form the kind of context from Buddhist philosophy that, that will help a contemporary meditator see the connection, the authentic connection of meditative practice to, to traditional Buddhist philosophy and psychology.
0: I want to put a plug in. For the place that you did at least the original retreat, and that was the Insight Meditation Center in Bar. In
1: Barry Barre, B-A-R-E is, is it's uh, Barry Massachusetts. Yeah, that's right. It's in kind of central Massachusetts, rural Massachusetts. It's uh, the and and Insight in the name Insight Meditation Society. That's a translation of the the word Vipassana, which is uh, strictly speaking the kind of meditation there which tends to amount to a lot of mindfulness meditation um but in in buddhist philosophy there are specific insights you're trying to cultivate when you do that but yeah i did my first retreat there in 2003 in fact i've done of the seven retreats i've done that are that range in length from one week to two weeks six of them have been there so i very much uh, you know uh been situated in that tradition, which is a. Uh, I mean, if there are any real Buddhist uh, scholars out there, they may know that that, that comes from so called uh, Theravada Buddhism. There are two main kinds of Buddhism Theravada, Mahayana. Uh, but in the book, I actually address ideas that are common to both. So I want to begin
0: uh, the analytical portion, shall we say, of the interview by talking about a little bit about evolutionary psychology and psychology in general and how it answers the question, and it's a Buddhist question, why we suffer, why our interior lives, so to say, are so fraught. What, what is it about natural selection that produced a kind of mind that um, suffers, uh, well, <laughs> I keep wanting to speak in the Buddhist language, greed, hatred, and delusion? <laughs> right. Why, why did we evolve like that? Why, why didn't we evolve to be? I don't know. People right. mention bonobos a lot. I don't know what they think, right. but uh, why is our interior life so fraught?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, Buddhism makes this kind of amazing claim about why we suffer. It says that the reason we suffer, uh, and, and for that matter, the reason we make other people suffer, in other words, the reason we sometimes behave badly, uh, is because we don't see the world clearly. And we have illusions about ourselves, we have illusions about other people, we have illusions about the world out there. And when you think about it, this, this falls in the, you know, nice if true category, because it means you could, in principle, kill three birds with one stone, right? You you try to get closer to the truth, the true view of, of yourself, of things out there, and in the process, you get not only truth, but more happiness, and uh, you become a better person. So... Truth, happiness, goodness, uh, nice to be able to pursue those three things at the same time. That is that is the Buddhist claim. And although I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, meditation automatically makes you a better person, for example, I think you can find very adept meditators who aren't great people. I do think that it tends to be the case that you, you, you progress on these three fronts uh you know tends to come as one if you follow uh, the Buddhist path with with some degree of commitment at least in the sense of having a daily meditation practice and remembering uh what you know what why you're doing that. Now as for the question you ask about where does natural selection come in, well one thing I had noticed in writing about evolutionary psychology is you know Buddhists are right in that we do tend to suffer and we don't always tend to see the world clearly. And and, and natural selection explains both. I mean, um, for starters, if you look at something that's really emphasized in Buddhism, which is our failure to really reckon with the impermanence of things, including the impermanence of gratification itself. Well, I think, you know, Evolutionary psychology explains why gratification would be fleeting, right? If you, I mean, natural selection builds organisms that will be good at getting their genes in, into the next generation, period. That is the, the bottom line, so, so far as natural selection is concerned. And it's pretty obvious that if you imagine animals that find enduring gratification easy, they're probably not going to get genes <laughs> into the next generation very effectively, right? I mean, they eat one meal. And then lie there contented and never have another meal. Well, that's not good. They'd have sex once and then lie there basking in the afterglow. Well, that's not a good way to get, you know, genes into the next generation. You need to actually eventually get restless and want more sex if you want to maximize the number of genes you get into the next generation. So it, it makes sense that we are not designed to find enduring happiness easy. We're not designed that way by natural selection. And when you think about it, I mean, as for this, the Buddhist uh, emphasis on not seeing the world clearly, on delusion, on, on illusion, there's a little of that here, too, because we tend to, when we're looking forward to the next gratification, eating some junk food, sex, getting some promotion we've worked for, buying something online, some new gadget, we tend to focus on the gratification and not really think about how fleeting it's going to be. So even that you could say is a kind of illusion and, and Buddhism is considered a kind of illusion, not really reckoning with the impermanence of things. So so right there you see how um, evolutionary psychology accords with Buddhism on on both 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 of these well, on both these dimensions. The the emphasis mm-hmm. that people by nature recurringly uh, well, that they don't see the world clearly, and that they recurringly suffer, and that uh, those two are related. Um, and by the way, the word dukkha it is translated as suffering, a lot of scholars would say that another good translation of that, or at least a supplementary translation, would be unsatisfactoriness. And that just accords perfectly with 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 a Darwinian view, because you would expect that that natural selection builds animals that are kind of recurringly dissatisfied. They always want more. You can always do something to increase your chances of getting genes in the next generation. So restlessness, unsatisfactory, it makes sense that that would be a natural thing.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: So you go a little bit deeper than that into it, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about the theory of the modular mind, that is. And the way that I always, uh, again... when I discuss this with people, I always told them that I have little machines inside of me, and that they simply produce these impulses and thoughts, and I'm not in control of them. That they're not really me; they're mm-hmm. they're, they're they're doing things, and then my subjectivity does them. But the modular
1: mind seems to fit this. Way. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So in in uh, Buddhism, there is this pretty well known doctrine of not self, which is typically rendered as the idea that the self. Doesn't exist. Um, there are actually some people who wonder whether that's what the Buddha originally meant, by the way. Uh, you could also interpret his initial discourse on the subject as just kind of saying, you know, these various parts of you that you think of as you. if you go look look at your feelings, your thoughts, whatever, they're not really under your control, and they they often bring you unhappiness. So like do yourself a favor and don't uh, identify with them. And if you want to look at the doctrine in that strictly kind of therapeutic way, meditation is certainly a powerful tool because it can help you look at things like uh, anxiety in a way that, uh, that loosens their grip on you. But, um, uh, and by the way, the idea there is that the anxiety itself and, and this is consistent again with evolutionary psychology. The, the anxiety itself can be warping your perspective, so it is itself an instance of not seeing the world clearly, as well as a source of suffering. But 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 you're right in, in in bringing up the modular mind. I think you're pointing to the the Buddhist, the more conventional idea that what the Buddha meant is the self does not exist as we think of it, and. Mm-hmm. One way of interpreting that is to say, you know, you have this sense that the conscious you is in charge. It's the CEO. It's, it's making the decisions. It's generating the thoughts. Um, well, that's false. That, that, that is certainly one version of not self that you can find in early Buddhist texts, including some that are attributed to the Buddha. And um, there, uh, there's, a, there's, first of all, a fair amount of psychological data supporting that. There are experiments that seem to show that when we decide to do something like, okay, I'm going to sit here and, and, and at any moment I'm free to decide to push this button. Well, there are studies that seem to show that uh, the actual physiological processes that lead your finger to push the button kick in before you are consciously aware of deciding to do anything. And there's a a lot of data like this, some involving the so-called split-brain patients whose whose brain hemispheres were surgically separated. But in any event, um, a lot of evidence suggests that maybe this conscious self is not really in charge, that it's more like an observer, that it's more like the passenger on a plane that's under the illusion that it's the pilot, and if you ask, well, what is the pilot? Well, according to the modular view of mind, there's no one pilot, but there's rather a lot of competing kind of modules in your mind. You shouldn't think of them as physically distinct regions. It's more like they're different networks that are distributed over the brain, but they have different specialties. So there could be one that is like uh designed. Uh, I say put designed in quotes when I'm, when I'm talking about something that natural selection creates because uh, yeah. it's not a conscious process, but a, a, a module that's designed uh, to keep you you nourished. So it's, it's looking for things to eat and, and, and wants you to eat food. That's its mission is to get you to eat food. And then there's a, a module that maybe wants you to impress people whose opinions are important. And uh, so if you're sitting there at like a cocktail party and there's like a hors d'oeuvres over on the counter... But there's these people whose opinions you value and you're talking to them. These modules, you know, might be un, un, unbeknownst to you, you know, beyond conscious recognition. They may be kind of fighting it out. And the, 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 for the time being a module that, that wants you to impress the people is winning. You're sitting there talking to them, but every once in a while you may feel the tug that the other module is trying to insert into your consciousness. And again, I say trying to, it doesn't mean it's conscious, but um, so that, that's the modular model of the mind, that, 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 that natural selection over time, humans, you know, through evolution acquired a number of, a succession of specialized modules that then were refined by natural selection, but they have different missions. And to a large extent uh there any competition between them is worked out at the subconscious level, so you're only aware of like the the winning thoughts, so to speak. So the module that that suppresses the other ones and projects its thought, like time to go get some food into your consciousness, is you're only aware of that winning thought, and you think that it's a decision you made, but in fact, there's all of this subterranean competition going on. That you're not aware of, and and this, by the way, is is very consistent with a thing that you hear at meditation retreats sometimes, where t- meditation teacher will say thoughts think themselves, and and what they mean, they're referring to an apprehension that that you may have if you after really getting kind of in depth with your meditation as you can on a meditation retreat, and that's this sense that. Well, this thought just kind of floated by. Normally, I think of myself as generating, but actually, whoa, it just floated in from left field and I can either choose to identify with it and embrace it and call it my own or not. I can just let it go. Now, uh, that's also done with feelings And, and I think most people find it easier to do with feelings than with thoughts. I think doing that with thoughts is like a more advanced meditative state, but With both the feelings and the thoughts, the way evolutionary psychology might think of them is being generated by these modules. And we tend to naturally own them and think, that's part of myself. Indeed, I may have created that thing. But the identification is optional. And a lot of the progress you make in mindfulness meditation consists of getting good at choosing whether or not you want to identify with certain feelings or or certain thoughts. I'm
0: reminded of a... One of the most insightful uh, occurrences, I guess I would call it, my entire life, this must have been 15 years ago, I had a student uh, who was having a lot of problems, and he went to see a psychologist, and he came in to talk to me about how he was doing, and he said, the psychologist says that I suffer from what he called intrusive thoughts, Hmm. and at that moment, it just flashed like... All of my thoughts are yeah. intrusive. No,
1: it's the only kind there
0: are. That is <laughs> The only kind there are, my friend. And it really just was like a flash to me. Like, I, I am not, I do not think what I want to think. Right. There are things inside me that are thinking, and they are passing before me like I was watching a movie, except that some of these really hurt. Right and uh, it, unlike a movie, well, actually, a movie can affect your uh, emotions sure. as well. Sure,
1: and you can and you can either choose to get wrapped up into it, you know you can get wrapped up into it a lot, or sometimes, especially if you're just seeing a movie you don't think is very good, you're not drawn into it. And that that yeah. metaphor is often used by meditation teachers. You know that that it the truth is it's more like a movie than you realize. And if you'll kind of to some extent treat it like one, where you're somebody sitting there watching and enjoying it. When it's enjoyable, for what it's worth, but not not letting it cause you pain, then you'll be better off.
0: I think there's something in the folk psychology, at least American folk psychology that sort of recognizes this as, as as when people will say, after being really angry or doing something untoward, they'll say, "I was in a state. You know what I mean? In other words, they're saying that wasn't really me. That right something going on right. in me, right? But the real me is back. Now, of course, the real me isn't back because there's no me. Right. It's just a different
1: <laughs> well this is another part of the Buddhist argument against the existence of the self is and you do see this in the, in the first, uh, the Buddha's first discourse on the self where he's emphasizing that you know these different parts of you he goes through does this inventory let's look at all the things we think of as part of the self including even the physical body well they all change you know yeah. and so if you're thinking I mean what is it that's actually constant? From day to day, year to year. I mean, you think of yourself as the same person you were when you were a child, but what has actually endured? The, the truth is, in many respects, you are more like your next door neighbor that's your age now, than you are like the child that was you. So, in what sense has the self endured? So that that's part of the part of the logic. Mm-hmm. So,
0: one of the things that Buddhism says—I won't try to paraphrase all of Buddhism here—but is that the the first step. And, and I guess it's sort of the first noble truth, and that is there's, there is this thing to unsatisfaction, is recognizing that it is happening to you. Mm-hmm. Not, not that you're doing it, but it is happening to you. But then it becomes very, and I think you do a good job with this in the book, it becomes very counterintuitive because it doesn't say what your natural inclination, whoever you are, what your natural, and that is fight that feeling. Right. Push that feeling aside. It says, right. look at it. So can you talk a little bit about
1: that? Yeah, this is a real irony. And I my first experience with this was, and this was my first big meditation breakthrough, was at that first retreat. It was a few days into the retreat, and the retreat had been mainly painful. I had not been able to focus on my breath by and large or anything else. I had gotten slowly better at focusing on my breath, and I was starting to feel it just, uh, when I wasn't meditating, I was calmer, things were more beautiful, and so on. But the big kind of, Breakthrough was this morning where I had had more coffee than I should have, and this has been known to happen with me. and I had this this grinding sensation in my draw in, in my jaw, so it was very much like just being stressed out, you might say. it was just like stress but it was in my jaw. And, and I was thinking, oh man, I wish this weren't happening. I'm trying to meditate. And then I thought, well, the idea with meditation is you're supposed to just like be with it as they say in that very tone when they're met, you know, when it's a meditation teacher. And uh, so I thought, okay, don't run away from it. Don't wish it weren't there, accept it. And then suddenly I, so, so I, I kind of observed it, felt it, and then suddenly I had this feeling like, wait a second, the sensation is still there, but it's down in my jaw, and I'm kind of up here in my head, and it's, so it's really not bothering me. It's just something I'm watching, right. and and this irony is that you start by getting closer to the feeling and experiencing it more fully, and that gives you a kind of a critical distance from it. You know, and I've had experiences like that with anxiety and, and other unpleasant feelings. But that is like the fundamental irony, I would say, of mindfulness meditation is that by not running away from negative feelings, you get a kind of distance from them and they become less of a problem.
0: Yeah. I and mean, this is, I've, and I could be wrong here, but this is what some Buddhists call the doctrine of the second arrow. That is, you do something that makes you feel bad and then you feel bad about feeling bad. Right. So you get more bad feelings and it gets into this cycle. right? Just, and, and then it leads to something you talk about a lot in the book, which I very much like because it's one of my favorite things. Self-loathing. I love mm-hmm. self-loathing. So, I can go fun? there and be, be miserable but happy for a long time. Could you talk isn't a little it, bit about that? It
1: yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's funny. And by the way, this is another thing that gets a lot more emphasis in modern teaching than you will find in ancient texts. Yeah. I just don't know that Self-loathing was a big problem back then, uh, and, and, and you know, uh, well, they
0: didn't have the SAT and all the others. Well,
1: there is, yeah, you know, a lot of things they didn't lists, have. Lists of everything. And I should say, by the way, that this is speaking of the modern environment. I mean, um, you know, there's there's two problems with being a human. One is the feelings that natural selection created, and the misperceptions natural selection created that would be a problem even if we were living in the environment of, of our evolution and then the the additional problem is that we're not living in that environment so in some respects things are even worse so it's like natural it's, to worry it's about, environment where you can you can google yourself
0: god forbid oh my well god.
1: yeah i mean i mean in the last 10 or 20 years the environment has become much much stranger but i mean even even 30 years ago people were doing things that we're not uh, the, the natural selection didn't equip us for so so anxiety about your children is natural. You would find some version of that in hunter gatherer societies, but like dropping them off at a daycare center, where you don't know anybody. That's not something. That's weird, right? And like anxiety about what people think of you is 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 probably natural. But but giving a presentation to a bunch of people you have never met that's not something natural selection prepared us for. So naturally. People have public speaking uh, anxiety. So, so anyway, uh, the, the uh, I just want to say that there, there are kind of two kinds of problems highlighted by evolutionary psychology: the original design of the organism, and then it's being in uh, an environment uh, that that it's not designed for. So that may account for self-loathing uh, or the the prevalence of it. But um, it, it is it is an issue with me. Uh, I think it's less of an issue by virtue of my meditation practice. I had like a really dramatic experience in my, at my first retreat involving this thing. I mean, it was the, this wasn't classic mindfulness meditation, uh, I would say. it It is the kind of thing that can result from deeply immersive kind of con, what's called concentration meditation and uh just wild stuff can happen and it can seem psychedelic and and uh intensely blissful both both of which this experience uh actually was but the experience itself involved kind of thinking i was like looking seeing inside my head and i saw uh, a thought kind of that i've had many times which is like bob you screwed up it was actually (laughs) it was actually uh less, it was actually more, it was more like an R rating than a PG. I just gave you the PG yeah. version of it, but um, the word was, the exact word was not screwed up, but um, yes, I got it. Uh, the up, up up, was, the up part was there. Um, yeah. But um, so, and, and suddenly it seemed like it was actually, I was not, there were two parts of my mind I was kind of seeing. There was the part that was saying it, and then the part that the communication was directed at. So there was part of the mind that was me, but that was not the part saying the thing. There, there was a there was like, I guess now I would I didn't think of it that way at the time. Now I might think of it as a module. A module for for criticizing yourself, which would actually make sense as a module because because you need to be aware of your mistakes. It's just that you don't want the module to get out of control. And um and so it was like it was really bizarre and kind of psychedelic. And when I told my teacher about it after the retreat, one of the retreat teachers, um, he said uh, he said two things. He said, first of all, I mean, I thought he was going to tell me how to attain nirvana and was enlightened or something, but he was very <laughs> casual about it. And he said uh, he said first he said, uh, "Yeah, sounds nice, but don't get attached to it." And, and what he meant was, you know, what we do here is mindfulness meditation, Vipassana. We're not looking for intensely blissful experiences like this. We are trying to examine the mind, but don't think that the object of the game is to have an experience so mind-blowing and profound that it's going to be easy to repeat, which and indeed, I've never had an experience like this since, uh, this exact kind of intensity, although I've had intense experiences. But the other thing he said was, I said, you know, normally... When I have that Bob, you screwed up thought. It, it's like I am both the sender of the communication and the recipient. But in this case, it seemed like I was the I was the recipient, but not the sender. And he said, "Yeah, well, now you're half right." And what he meant by that, what he meant by that, you know what he meant? He he meant there's no you to be the recipient. That that part was an illusion. <laughs> so. Um, Anyway, yeah, the the the, um, and there is a kind of connection between not self and, and self loathing. If if you don't, I mean, you can see the not self experience. If you talk to people who have been really adept meditators and and have the full on not self experience, often they will say, "Well, yeah, it, it happens incrementally. It started with me letting go of certain aspects." Of me and not identifying with them, and one of those can be the part that is chastising yourself, right? So, so there is there is a connection between letting go of self loathing and letting go of the self. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us a little bit about you. You you
0: spend a lot of time on um, the human uh, predilection for essentializing, especially uh, right. characteristics of other people. And I have to say, this is something that I enjoy very much.
1: Yeah, What's <laughs> natural. And. Yeah. I would say this is the other big Buddhist concept, aside from not-self, or at least the two big illusions that I address in the book that are asserted by Buddhism, I would say are not-self and so-called emptiness. Now, emptiness is a misleading term. It can. Thank be, you for saying that, by the way, because it really is terribly confusing. It's, it's a terrible term. <laughs> It, it, it is taken to mean a couple of different things. There, there are different strands of Buddhist philosophy. Some take it to mean that well, the whole world out there is a, is a is an illusion. That's not the mainstream interpretation. The more mainstream view, I think, is to say that things out there that you see do not have essence. And if you ask, well, what does that mean? I, I would I would bring up an experience I had also on my first retreat, where I was walking through the woods, and I looked at this weed called a plantain weed, and it got my attention because because I had tried to, I'd spent a lot of my life, well, I'm not a huge man, I had spent a non-trivial amount of time pulling it out of my lawn because it was a weed. And suddenly, for the first time, I, I just thought, like, why do we call these weeds? They, they, it seems as beautiful as anything else that I'm looking at in the woods right now. So it's clearly like just some kind of arbitrary human designation. We put weeds on one side, non-weeds on the other. There's no like rigorous definitional distinction between the two. And, you know, it's one thing to say that, to just make the point that there's no good rigorous definition of a weed. But this went beyond that. This was like my perception of the weed had fundamentally shifted. And you uh, you realize that normally when you see something that is a weed you feel a kind of essence of weed. It projects something to you that is really quite different from what a flower projects or what an evergreen tree projects. And so the point is that the way we categorize things infuses our perception in a very subtle way. And what Buddhism is saying is, you know, all these categories are artificial constructs. So To the extent that they lead you to perceptually impose a kind of essence on things, that is a false imposition. And a truer view, in other words, the view, you might say the view from the point of view of the universe or the view from nowhere, not the view from your particular vantage point or even the vantage point of your particular species, the truer view does not attribute essence to these things. And, you know, when you move from weeds to people, this becomes really consequential, Because we attribute, we do attribute essence to people and to categories of people. And uh, it affects the way we behave toward them. And it helps start wars. And I, I think it's involved in the current kind of tribalization of America, the kind of political polarization. You know, once you think of somebody as being in the other tribe, you're, you know... I mean, like, like, like do a thought experiment. Suppose, I don't know which side of the Trump divide any given person is on. If you're on my side, which is to say you're not a big fan of Trump, imagine you're talking to somebody and, you know, nice person, great. You're, you know, you'd like to maybe, who knows, play golf with them or something. They seem fine. And then suddenly you find out that they're an ardent Trump supporter. I predict that if you pay attention, there's something fundamental that shifts in the way you look at them. If you're like a real strong anti-Trumper, and it can work in the other direction. If you're ardently pro-Trump and you meet somebody and then you thought that maybe they were on your side, but it turns out they hate Trump. So either way, I think if you pay attention, you're going to sense a shift in your very perception of people. There's like a vibe they're now giving off that they weren't giving off before. And 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 to not have those kinds of feelings is the feeling of emptiness, to not impose categories uh, on things. And and the trouble, I mean, you might say, well, wait a second, um, they are in the other tribe. I should be aware of that. Yeah, you can be aware of it without it being so kind of emotionally felt and, and so emotionally infusing your perception that it warps subsequent judgments about them. Okay, there are specific cognitive biases that are triggered by the way we categorize uh, people. My One of the most interesting, I think, is the fact that if we have somebody in the friends or allies category, when they do something good, we think of that as flowing from kind of essence of them. That's the kind of person they are. If they do something bad, we're more inclined to just explain it away. Well, they had a bad day. They had gotten some bad news. They didn't get any sleep or they were under peer pressure. With enemies, once you've got them in that enemy box and you're perceiving them that way, it's the opposite, psychologists have shown. It tends to be the case then that if they do something bad, it confirms your view of them as the enemy and and you attribute it to the kind of person they are. If they do something good, you find a way of explaining it away. They're just trying to fool us. They're just whatever. So, and, and I think that's the kind of thing that starts wars and that's why people who favor a given invasion, want to demonize the leader, or at least that's the way it works, is that once you've got everyone thinking of the leader as a truly evil person, then there's no way out of the box because anything good they do will be explained away, anything conciliatory they do will be explained away, and so on. So these things have real consequence, and I think mindfulness meditation makes you uh, better able to sense the subtle ways that feelings are infusing your perceptions and whether or not you have the full on experience of emptiness, which by the way, really adept meditators tell us is wonderful and, and very pleasurable. But whether or not you have that, um, I, I think just being aware of the little ways that your emotions are tugging at you and uh, and, and even getting you to do things like retweeting or clicking share to promulgate some news that you really haven't checked out. You just like the feel of it because it, it reflects favorably on your tribe and unfavorably on the other tribe. Even little ways that like that that feelings intrude and I think uh, exacerbate political polarization, I think you can become more aware of those uh, through meditation. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Yes. Um... This tendency for essentialism is something that I see all the time on, not that I spend a lot of time there anymore because I find it unhealthy, on Facebook. And again, if you've read evolutionary psychology, Facebook is a fascinating place because you can see uh, tribalism was may have been fit for the era of evolutionary uh, adaptiveness, <laughs> but it is not on the internet. <laughs> it does, right. does not work anymore because you see these people work themselves into a, a kind of uh, frothy anger with one another right. over people that aren't even there. Right.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, you know, there's, uh, there are debates in evolutionary psychology between so-called group selection and individual selection about exactly how this stuff evolve. but not, nobody doubts that, that we are designed in quotes by natural selection to, uh, identify with a group, uh, in opposition to other groups and that that fundamentally changes our perception, and I would say distorts our perception of our group and of the other group, often in ways that needlessly exacerbate the conflict in ways that turn out to be bad for both groups. And in the modern yeah, environment, plain- sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, I was going to say a very plain spoken psychologist I know says that when people move in this tribalist direction, they enter what he calls the stupid zone. Yeah. They just become very unintelligent I mean suddenly yeah, but, they, they no longer uh, uh, exercise any critical
1: judgment any longer and yeah the only thing the only thing I'd change about that is instead of saying they I would say we because we yeah sure no I'm you know with you. It, 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 it's I mean you know it's like the cases of like obvious crazy rage are easy to spot on TV and kind of yeah. you know laugh at or be terrified by and not identify with but I think we all you know yeah, no, you know just just things like so-called confirmation bias where you bias, yeah. you like the information that supports your argument you 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 reject or don't remember the information that doesn't that is in fact the example I just gave of kind of spreading fake news is is confirmation bias and the way it's working is you are you you have a feeling of attraction to the news that supports your argument you have a feeling of aversion to the news that doesn't and you know this 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 kind of clinging attraction and this aversion on the other hand are are the two things that Buddhism is most devoted to making you aware of. I mean, you you mentioned earlier that 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 the the what are sometimes called the three poisons: greed, hatred, and delusion. That is the common translation, but the truth is that you could translate the original terms as. Uh, rather than greed, it would be like any grasping attraction for something, and rather than hatred, it would be any aversion to something. And, and, and then delusion, uh, you could say, is what results from those things. It, 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 and and, and the, the confirmation bias is a perfect example. You grasp things that support your view, you're averse to things that don't, and the result is, is delusion. Yeah, no,
0: that's that's absolutely right. I have just one quick topic uh, that I want you to talk about briefly, and then I'll let you go, because I know you have another appointment. Well, one of the common criticisms of Buddhism is, especially insofar as you can reduce it, and I don't know if you can, to a pursuit of equanimity, is that you end up really boring. I can't remember, was it your mother who said that the Buddhist would be like a tree stump or something? What was it exactly she said?
1: Uh, I, well, the there, there was certainly the meditation teacher who said, boredom can be interesting, And what she meant was if you're um, meditating and you're just like, oh, so boring. I can't. I can't focus. This is like the worst thing. Well, then examine that feeling, right? I mean, you always have some feeling that's prominent enough to pay attention to. Even if you can't focus on your breath, just try looking at that. And she was just saying like... uh, You know, boring boredom can be interesting, and in the book, I say it's true, but it can also be very boring, and you have to experience that part <laughs> first. Uh, before yeah. you, um, but but the point that, um, anything can be the object of your observation is an interesting one because you know, people who have trouble doing the conventional thing, and I have trouble of like focusing on your breath, um, the uh one thing you can do is just wait until you have a prominent emotion that's problematic. And I think a good candidate is sadness. If you're feeling sad, just sit down, close your eyes and observe the sadness. Yeah. You may find it's, easy, it's easier yeah. than you think, even if you don't consider yourself a great meditator and it will change, you know, in other words, like where in my head is the sadness or where in the rest of my body is the sadness. And for example, you may notice there's a distinct there's a feeling right around your eyes, that it, it it may feel like you're close to crying, even though' you're, you're not going to cry, you you're, you're probably not going to cry, but sadness seems to involve like mobilizing at least sometimes the muscles that would be involved in, in in crying. Now that may or may not be interesting to you, but the point is that when you start evaluating the feeling that way, it tends to make you suffer less. The feeling does because mm-hmm. you, you're just not, you're not enslaved to it anymore. you're an observer of it. And I, I, I think that's a, you know, you don't have to go to retreat or anything. Just sometime when you're having an intense emotion, sit down and watch it.
0: Well, Bob, I want to say that I appreciate very much you spending this time with us today. You've written a terrific book. As I said, we've been talking to Robert Wright about his book, Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. So, Bob, uh, let me ask you uh, one final question before I let you go. What what are you working on now?
1: Yeah, the... the... Honest, somewhat embarrassing answer is that I'm completely immersed in book promotion right now. Oh, but that's right. Yeah. Um I shouldn't be. As a good Buddha, you know, it's interesting though. It, it's interesting. Publishing a book is such a good test of your how seriously you take Buddhism because it's, you know, part of Buddhism is don't be attached things in this selfish way that you're normally attached to things including like your reputation right and you want people to think highly of you you want people to say nice things about your book and they don't always that has happened with every book of mine that they not everyone loves it and uh you know it's a challenge to not get too wrapped up into it not not check your amazon numbers every you know 37 seconds and not Dislike the people who say nasty things about your book, and I'm having some success, you know. But I'd be lying uh, if I said it was uh, complete success. But I've got to say, I mean, the, the the conversation we just had was a true pleasure. You know, talking to oh, someone great, who, yeah. who's conversing in Buddhism, uh, you know, and and asks you uh, questions that are illuminating. That that's that's and having plenty of time talking about it. That's as good as it gets. So I really that's appreciate great. this.
0: Well, thanks very much, Bob, and thanks for being on the show. And let me say to everyone who listens to the New Books Network, thank you for your patronage. We really appreciate it, and I hope to talk to all of you soon. Bye-bye.